You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Episode 4 of Politic, and it's your girl, Kenya Abbott Jr., excited to talk about this topic today. Today's theme is That's Law. And, I mean, come on now, we're talking about criminal justice system, we're talking about mass incarceration, um, and I think it's a good topic to talk about because a lot of people are now really getting behind this whole idea of, you know, criminalization, you know, understanding that the 13th Amendment technically means that we can be slaves when we are, you know, in the penitentiary or whatever that looks like. And we got celebrities talking about stuff like this, like Jay-Z, Meek Mill, you got John Legend coming to the city doing whole, like, um, forms around this type of stuff. So people are openly talking about this topic, but I want to talk to the millennials in Detroit and kind of get y'all feedback on what's going on. And so a lot of people don't know right now, but Detroit um, is about to house the new Wayne County jail. Um, This jail complex is going to be um, housing jail beds for youth and adults. It's going to be housing courts. It's going to be housing offices. And it costs $533 million to build this new jail. It is a public privately funded um, project. And so, I think it's important for us to kind of talk about this because I have these conversations and people don't even know that this is going on and it means something, right? And I mean, like when we're thinking about criminalization, we think about gentrification, like I think all these things go hand in hand. And I personally have an attachment to this because I just finished up my master's in December and my whole project is around finding alternatives to jail. For those that don't know, I just recently um, attended the Harvard Symposium around prison abolition. Um, and it literally was just talking about how we can do things that are not jail. Right. And so before I kick off this topic and really dig into, you know, how you guys feel, I want to let people know who is at this table today. OK. And so first I got my homegirl Jazz sitting here with me. <laughs> uh, a lot of people call her my big twin. We used to argue about that at MSU. What's up, Jazz? Hey, <laughs> I got my homeboy, Ron. We met each other working with the youth in Detroit for uh, what was that? Grow Detroit's Young Talent That's at right. Once Upon a Time. Exactly. But I know that this is a topic that is also near and dear to your heart. And I'm just glad to have you at the table today, RJ. Good I to see you. It. Thank you. I also got my homeboy, Sean, over here. I know he all into the political lane doing his thing. What's up? What's up, Detroit? <laughs> and so, you know, I- I'm excited to have you in this dialogue. And last but not least, I got Tiffany, my homegirl. We used to be in, a, uh, we took some master class together. And I mean, I know that this is also an area of your work and you are definitely invested in this topic. And so I'm just glad to have some game changers at the table today. And so let's just dive into the topic. I mean, enough of, of me talking. What about this jail complex? How are y'all feeling? Is it necessary? Do y'all think that, you know, we need this Wayne County jail? Come on. (laughs) Absolutely not. I feel like it's a waste of the people's money. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is another form of slavery. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes back to, as you know, um, a lot of incarceration, it, it stems from either being locked out in some way financially. So it just adds to that cycle. Um, and if someone does not have the money to bond out, then they're stuck there mm-hmm. until either they're forced to cop a plea. It's a waste. I won't get into it right now, <laughs> but it's a complete waste to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my question is, if it's publicly, privately funded, who's who's the public, private person that's funding this? this boy? I mean, that's just TB underscore lawyers intake right now. Mm-hmm. Where is money coming from and what's the incentive? Because there's always a perverse incentive with stuff. So it must be somebody making a profit off of it. It must be something off of that. 
to make it worthy to invest the 500 million that you're talking about that they're trying to put. It's not going into a school. It's going into something that's a lot different. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just to give like a little overview, I know that a lot of the funding is coming from, of course, Wayne County, but you also have some of Rock Ventures um, heavily mm-hmm. invested in this. I know, I don't know if y'all know about the original site, uh, which was supposed to be Gratiot downtown. Right. Um, they kind of swapped this idea for this land Lands. and you had a lot of stuff going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes. And you know, what's crazy. It was so hard for us to really understand how the money traveled through this whole project, right. but we knew it had a lot of land swapping going on. And so now the new location is supposed to be off of Warren and 75 area. And so just thinking about that alone, yeah. you know, when you got people invested in what they want to see come out of these spaces or, you know, places and how they can kind of manipulate where these projects end up. Mm-hmm. I know for me particularly, I, I like the idea of focusing on what the issues are with the uh, criminal injustice system. However, I think one of the things we need to focus on in the community is how do we create resolutions, right? So it cre- it went from one problem to another, meaning like it went from downtown Grasher and Bovian to 75 and and Warner Mac, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the issue isn't about um, where the location is. They're going to build it. It's a more broader political issue, right? And a broader political issue that comes out of that is who are the different dynamics mm-hmm. that have an issue with it being in Detroit or building another prison and those such as ourselves who doesn't believe we need another prison mm-hmm. and need another one in Detroit, right? And so that's what it really boils down to. And so when we start to think about the dynamics that plays into that, we need to have a bigger discussion with people who have these uh, adverse opinions, right? And we got to include them into this discussion because at the end of the day, Detroit does need uh, a lot of support, not only from native Detroiters mm-hmm. such as um, yourself and myself who graduated from Detroit, went away to college to Alabama and m University. Hey. All right. Hey. And came back <laughs> and doing the right thing. Right. But at the same time, we need support, right? It's not just about having an idea or a dream. It's about having a, a, a real secure network here right. and a strategic, strategic plan that can help us pull not only uh, people who are affected by this directly in Detroit, but also people who want to come involved, come into the city and be involved in the uh, redevelopment outside of something that's called gentrification. Mm-hmm. I just want to say uh, my issue with the uh, public-private partnerships is the transparency and community input. Um, I think that right now we're in a location um, where you can see an example of that because we have the Little Caesars Arena down the street, which was supposed to be also home to the District Detroit um, area in which we had all of these agreements in which they were supposed to honor as far as hiring Detroiters for the construction of the arena as well as uh, bringing affordable housing to that area. And those um those deals and those promises were not kept. Mm-hmm. So I just think that uh, with any public-private uh, partnership that we have, there has to be some transparency and there has to be someone that's going to hold people accountable when they don't hold up their end of the bargain. And it, um, to me, a lot of these like public-private partnerships that go wrong, like they just promote more gentrification mm-hmm. and less about the community of uh, Detroit as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. just because like even with the Little Caesars Arena, how they didn't hire enough Detroiters or how they haven't created affordable housing, that promotes gentrification. Yeah. So my thing is they just need transparency and they need more community input. Like it's not always just about the money and stuff. Like mm-hmm. they need, if they, you know, they could have built something into this deal where they say, okay, yeah, y'all can have this land where the current uh, Frank Murphy 
uh, jail is, but at the same time, whatever you build on here, like, you know, maybe you need to have Detroiters that are helping with that process and then also, like, not just create some, you know, some developments that Detroiters can't afford. Mm -hmm. So it's just like if we're going to do these private-public partnerships, we don't have to help, help these private companies. They can do it on their own without any incentive, without any tax breaks, without any... uh help but if we are going to help them then they need to hold up their end of the bargain and when they don't what are we going to do about it mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought up the accountability piece and we can get to you Ron but on the 420 edition show I don't know if y'all tuned in we talked about accountability especially around you know this whole legalization of marijuana and when we think about who's in jail what crimes are they committing mm-hmm. there is a large population of those folks who are still in there and so when we even think about how we're expanding and creating these policies and laws that are supposed to help people and people going to the ballot to vote for these issues and policies it's like who's holding it accountable who are we going to you know be able to say hey you said x y and z now can we see these things starting to happen and so our communities can benefit from all of these things that we're showing up for because we think that they really make a difference i think you segued into something that i was trying to hit on right mm-hmm. who's who are we holding accountable mm-hmm. right i heard a lot of uh, good information from what um, she just said in terms of how these are having adverse effects on our community However, the question is, who do we ultimately hold accountable, right? So I'll tell you this. I work at for the Quicken Loans family and companies. I worked at Rocket Fiber as a their first ever apprentice, which means that they're they're willing to obviously expand into out, out other things outside of the traditional uh, corporate America mm-hmm. pay uh, you know payer system, right? They're willing to do apprenticeships, internships whatever they can to kind of accommodate the community. I think that's something we should have put out there. However, at the same time, when we talk about how companies are willing to adapt to the different natures of the environment in Detroit, we need to look at who should be held accountable. So when we look at the arena for Little Caesars Arena, I live across the street and I look at it every day. And I have the privilege as a few Detroiters, not only black male natives, but as an actual uh, person who has a vested interest in the city, I'm able to look upon a, a, a architectural marvel of our city mm-hmm. and not only take pride in it, but understand what it means to our community, right? But do I hold Mike Elich or necessarily Dan Gilbert or some of the bigger oligarchs in charge of our city's uh, politics in charge? Not necessarily, because when I heard about the deli shop closing in Eastern Market yeah. this past week, one of the things that struck me is for the last 30, 25 to 32 years, did we have an opportunity to purchase this land? And people don't like mm-hmm. hearing this from me, right? Yeah. They're very critical of me because guess what? I'm a, I'm one of the biggest advocates of our community, but I'm also one of the most consciously advocates against our community. Meaning like anything that I understand that can help us improve or move in the right direction as a community of black people, I'm going to speak for for it, regardless of who hasn't. Uh, opposing opinion about it. But what I will say is this. We have to uh, interject a certain accountability upon the, among ourselves if we want to see real results, mm-hmm. right? If we want to see real results, we have to interject a certain accountability upon amongst ourselves, right? And that, and a part of that comes with being uh, quite frankly honest mm-hmm. and real about the shit that's going on out here, yeah. right? And so for me... When I hear about these issues, I try to figure out how we can get more involved, whether it's through a nonprofit perspective, such as where I work for in uh, Matrix Human Services, where we provide services for our community. 
whether it's directly or indirectly through finding housing through Section 8 or homeless shelters or direct uh, affordable housing or someone who's just helped one uh, create stable income so that they can be able to uh, take care of themselves through that, you know, systemic link of housing, affordability, um, a job security and all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think a part of it is not just realizing we have some barriers against us, but how we can better form uh, a strategy to deal with the issues we're dealing with as a community. Mm -hmm. And until we're able to be real about it, and quite frankly, um, as much critical about those things as we are about other things that we <laughs> should be. I'm not disqualifying that or belittling it. I'm just saying we need to be just as critical about certain things that affect us adversely as the things that we are so also aware, aware, you know, aware of or understanding that uh, affects us directly in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I just want to shift gears really quick. Um, thinking about uh, one of the things Jazz brought up is just, or even I want to say Tiff might have brought this up too, but thinking about who's impacted by all of this that's yeah. going on. Um, do y'all feel like Detroiters are being criminalized and marginalized? I mean, clearly there, I don't think it's all of us anymore, right? Because Detroit is the new black and Detroit is the new this and that. <laughs> but I'm curious to get y'all perspective on if y'all feel like people are being criminalized and marginalized in this space, especially with so much going on around this uh, criminal justice complex. But also thinking about how gentrification plays a role in that um, because we see it in pockets, you know, um, even though downtown may have the lowest people incarcerated, it's the easiest place for you to get into it, any Trump. kind of interaction Absolutely. with the popo. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. It's just that simple. Right. And so I want to get y'all opinions on how do y'all feel like Detroiters are being criminalized and what that looks like and how gentrification is playing a role? I can, I can speak to something that recently happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in um, court on Friday um, at 36th District Court in front of Salinthia Miller. And there was a situation where um, one African-American male got into it with a white male. And basically, he got charged with felony restricting and obstructing a police officer. This is a serious charge. This is like a felony. Like, this could have affected his job, his housing, like his livelihood, everything. And... We literally, in court, they played a tape, and they showed how basically they didn't do anything to the white male, but somehow this African-American male got tased. Um, one of the police officers had his arm around his neck. Um, and basically, when the judge dismissed the charges, everyone in the courtroom started clapping. And, it, you know, it just was crazy to just see that um, and see that he had to go through all of that stuff to be vindicated. And then the thing that really bothered me the most was that the white male that was involved in that situation um, walked away while they were dealing with the other guy that they had been tasing and take like they had took down. And so I, I do think that, um, you know, it's a lot easier for black males to be criminalized in downtown Detroit. Um, and I mean, I don't know if that was, if that was just something that rarely happens. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I honestly can't speak to like how common something like that happens or not, but it just goes to show you like sometimes, um, African American males can definitely be looked at as the bad person. And in the tape, it showed that he wasn't the initial aggressor. 
So, it, you know, he went through all of this stuff. He had got arrested. He had got charged. And he had to even come to court to fight for his rights and fight for his freedom. And I, I don't know. To me, it just kind of showed, like, you got to be careful when you're in Greek town or when you're uh, in Cork town or whatever area in downtown Detroit. Because if it's between you and maybe someone that's not African-American, it just seems like the police officers went right after the African-American male, even though he was the victim and not the aggressor. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely systematic. Um, if you look globally or nationally, as as opposed to also Detroit, like there's 15% black people, 13% black people nationally, and then there's 40% African-Americans incarcerated. So how does that happen? So it has to be some way that black people are being more so criminalized um, or being put in situations where maybe they don't have adequate representation or know the law or know the rights. Uh, that's why I like that, that that segment that you said is at the end. Because um, that's one thing that uh, a judge, when I was at uh, a political rally, uh, not like last year, it was a couple years ago, right after uh, 45 one, and she said, she, it was a judge who had been on the court for a long time. She said, you don't even know your rights because you, you don't even know that you're losing your rights because you don't even know your rights. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, that's that's pretty deep right there. So if you don't know that, you know, there's certain things that cops are looking for, for probable cause or your certain rights to your Fourth Amendment, then you might let them search your car. You might let mm-hmm. them search your passenger and, and, and they shouldn't. So uh, that and it's and it is the media, I think, is uh stereotypes of black men um and then that's that's here in detroit so those numbers just proportionally uh go crazy for for black people getting in trouble so um i think it's a big thing of just education too and opportunity uh, i think that hinders our community and that's that's set up systematically to to our disadvantage so not to play the woe is me victim i mean we got to do our part and we got to uplift our own people and make sure that our, our friends and our own cohort aren't getting in trouble with the law but and doing the right things but it's definitely uh, layers to it, and I would say it's it's definitely a pyramid, uh, for sure, of of reasons why they want people to be incarcerated. They built that that facility. They're building that facility five hundred million dollars because they want people to house that boy. Mm-hmm. It's that's that simple. Mm-hmm. But that's right. Um, I I know firsthand what marginalization looks like mm-hmm. uh, because. I went to prison myself. Um, so when you come back out, when you reenter society, there are some checklist things that you have to do. You have to get a job. But how does one get a job if they don't have an ID? Mm-hmm. If they don't have adequate housing, how does one get a job? How do they put I live here on the application? Right. When all of the missing components, they don't send you out to society with all of that mm-hmm. unless you're a person who have you have the knowledge you you know your rights you're aware of the uh, the resources that you can tap into once you get out mm-hmm. a lot of people who will be in the jail mm-hmm. uh, they will be just let out with whatever belongings they came with they won't have anyone to set them up with housing they most people are homeless when housing. they yeah if, if you got felony you can't you even can't. apply for, for housing exactly so. especially federally funded mm-hmm. because you have the we know all about that. <laughs> it, it's right. it's School, it's yeah. like you yeah. you are in prison when you're incarcerated in a in a facility, mm-hmm. and when you get out, yep. you almost have no other alternative mm-hmm. because the other alternative, if you don't have housing, if you don't have the support that you need, then you're go. The chances are you're going right back uh, mm-hmm. into the streets. Uh, so that that's a way that they marginalize. They they build a wall. They put you in it. They hope that you stay there. Um, because Recidivism. They, yep. Yep. 
Uh, it's just a, vi- a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless we have alternatives and we have programming that will build that hope, that will uh, basically dismantle the system that has already been put in place, which is built on fear, mm-hmm. is built on mistrust, and is built on basically division, divide. Uh, so un- unless we, like we're, we're working here, we got to start somewhere. Right. Uh, you start that dialogue. You sit down with some people who are fun behind it, you know, the, the private funders and things like that. And you come to the table and you say, hey, I s- building a jail is not the only alternative yeah. for uh, for addressing crime. We're not saying we don't want people to have to uh, have consequences for the crimes. You have to. But if you get caught with a ounce of marijuana, you know, you shouldn't be doing years worth of time. Sure. You should have a substance abuse program that you can go into, uh, some job training that you can go into and we're the people who can get that going. Yeah, it's yeah. a big yeah. difference when I could play a client's case from a felony down to a misdemeanor. <laughs> that yeah. like that really changed people's lives. That could be the difference between catching a second break and not. Sure. Like if you get that misdemeanor, that's way better than getting a felony because mm-hmm. a felony inhibits so many things. Like you talked about that Thirteenth Amendment, mm-hmm. it just prohibits you from doing so many different things, and it makes you have to either you know find it some other type of way that they're not preparing you for to have to to get up out of the cycle that you're in. So, so for me. For me particularly, I ask the question, how do we get a Malcolm X? How do we get a Martin Luther King, right? And so in these discussions, uh, what W.E.B. Du Bois taught Mm -hmm. us is there's a talented temp. There's a 10% of a general population, whether it's African-American, European, Asian, Southeastern Southeastern Asian Pacific, or whatever your nationality is, right? There's a certain 10%. And so what we can't consume ourselves with, totally consume ourselves with, in my opinion, right, is how do we, um, what are the the problems? We know the problems. Yeah. We're not, you know, a part of the the systematic issue that we're dealing with is confirmation. Mm -hmm. We don't need confirmation. We know. We don't need historical practices right. because we taught ourselves, right, based off experience that regardless of what they tell us, based off principle and, uh, and experience, that it doesn't match up, right? And so it's a thing that they created that is called a caste system, whether it's the first one, caste system, the second caste system, uh, the first one, which is post-emancipation uh, proclamation, which was uh, we had something called black codes. Mm-hmm. That prohibited African Americans from participating in normal society. Right. Right? Which is what started right. all of this stuff. Which started it all. That's, that, that is the People start. don't know that history. And let me explain to you it wasn't born out of a, let's say, as we like to think, an evil spirit, yeah. right? It's evil in which it is taking place today, but what it taken place out of was a law that we all conform to and we're talking about today, right? Everything has a certain connection. So when we talk about how historically African-Americans through the New Jim Crow book, if you know, if you all have not read it, I strongly encourage you to do it. Alice mm-hmm. Thomas has had a good selection on how she explained how, you know, white people understood that slaves, whether they were black or white, indentured servants, yeah. whether they were black or whites, they all kind of came together, band together to deal with the plantation owners who were the oppressors, right? And through that, there was a system of uh, racial inequality that then came into uh, into place that was before 
racial discrimination. So as we look at the timeline, because as much as us scholars or us who claim to be scholars, you know, talk about what it is that how things work and how it should happen. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is this. It started off in that manner, right, where it wasn't about necessarily race. It was about indentured servitude. And it went from there to racial bias, Mm -hmm. meaning like, hey, I realized whether it was black or white because they had a certain cultural connection, language, religion, and uh, cultural ethnicity. They they felt like, well, we need to get people who can't connect to this, mm-hmm. who were more essentially African Africans. Mm-hmm. And so when we bring these people in, they don't know our language, they don't know our culture, and of course, they you know they come from a different dynamic. So as we gradually progress from that to uh, what they call segregation or the new Jim Crow, I should say, because mm-hmm. there was actually three after post-slavery emancipation, Proclam- emancipation proclamation. Mm-hmm. All right. You had the new racial bias, uh, that led way to the black codes that led way to segregation that led gated. I mean, the led way yeah. to Jim Crow. Right. And ultimately what dismantled that was, uh, not only the NAACP that was able to step in and challenge the cases being brought forth from the Ku Klux Klan, who who then was upset, right, based on their cultural understanding and stance for the last twenty uh, years or two centuries, they understood them to be a dominant race. And so, when you have a group of people who are not only free but asking for rights and are going against the whole ideology that you've lived up to for the last thirty or forty years, mm-hmm. it's no wonder that you have these type of conflicts. The question is, how do we deal with them? Just like African-Americans have adverse uh, consequences or or deals that we expect society to deal with because of uh, some extreme or wrongful occurrence, such as slavery for 400 years, we should expect uh, not with a tolerance, because the tolerance comes from understanding, not from a, a... a violence or an aggression type of thing, which we have been deemed to as African-Americans, right? We've been deemed to horror and violence in terms of dealing with the, uh, the, the, the terrors we dealt with from slavery and post-slavery, whether it's Jim Crow, black Crow, black laws or, uh, segregation. Mm -hmm. The question is how we dealt with it. And I think we dealt with it in a good way. And when we move into the 21st century is the question is how do we focus on, bringing a conversation around these issues so that we can move forward. We finally have a generation, millennials, whether you like them or not, because I'm a millennial, she's a millennial, it's a lot of millennials in this room, but I'll tell you this, how we move forward is how do we form a discussion around this new caste system, right? Because mm-hmm. the caste system that, that formed after segregation was the uh, modern industrial slave system, mm. which I I went to college in Alabama and I'm, and I have a a token mm-hmm. from Sloss Furnace from the unfortunate uh, stories and memories of African American males, seventy percent of who were kept in bondage mm-hmm. because of this new industrial prison system that said that vagrancy is going to be considered a law. Although we know a white man won't hire you, mm. hell, we don't have no businesses or ownership at that time in the 1940s and 50s to say that we can have a job unless they like us enough to hire us. Mm -hmm. But yet they created laws that as much as we 
we gripe about and complain about the uh, mass incarceration of black men today, it was at the same rate back then in the 1960s. Can I interject for a second? Because I think that, and I wasn't even trying to get into the history lesson on the yeah, topics, right, but right. I think it's so important because at the end of the day, young people don't understand the history. And so when we start talking about creating this dialogue and conversation going forward, who's going to be at that table? Mm-hmm. It's going to be us at the beginning, but we're going to get phased out. But the way that they're teaching young folks, this history is being erased every day. It's as if these things didn't even exist, mm-hmm. as if this whole idea is a yeah, newfound idea. But in reality, it's been built on and built on. And I'm so happy you brought up Black Coast. I did a whole paper on that in undergrad mm-hmm. about how mass incarceration even came about. And it went all the way back. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. like people want to make it seem like, oh, well, this is all new stuff. This ain't new stuff. No, this stuff has been going on. And it's a systematic cycle <laughs> of how we've been deemed to be looked at, how people have criminalized us from the start of our founding here in America in itself. And I think that's so important because it goes back into the most important conversation is what are young people being taught and what is traditional education doing for our people? And I honestly believe it's crippling us. Because we're not, we're being taught to books, we're being taught to tests, we're trying to pass all of these things. And when you actually look at these youth beds that's being built in this new criminal justice system, it's being built off of the fact that they see these young black and brown boys not testing properly, not getting to the, you know, the standards that they need at Mm -hmm. the third grade level. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're building these beds off of. And so all of this stuff, you know what I'm saying, goes into one. I mean, Pandora has (laughs) an ad right now saying three to five. If your kids does not, it says every time I have Pandora, mm-hmm. I don't pay for that not advertising. Mm-hmm. I don't have that privilege, right? <laughs> but I'll tell you this. They'll tell you, if your kids are not meeting the, the needs to three to five, they will not be at a level where they can be sufficient nope. in society, right? Yes. Whether it's uh, starting off in a, uh, you know what I mean, in a good environment or bad. Regardless, at three to five, they said they got to be there. Mm-hmm. The question is, they telling us right now, but yet they're not giving us access or resources to adequately meet those needs so we talk about resources and i've heard y'all multiple times say jails don't have to necessarily be the way and so i was a visionary in my master's program and identifying the fact that we don't necessarily need jails we need supports we need systems in place because these are environments that perpetuate and send people to prison that send people to jail and so i want to pick y'all brains right now and talking about What do alternatives to jails look like and what should we be focused on? Because I think personally, the, the, they're going to build these jails. How do we keep people out of jail is my question. Because in the Netherlands, that was one of our case studies. The Netherlands for the last, I want to say, I don't want to give no number, but for the last few years, you know, going on, they have been closing prisons at a high rate because they cannot fill them because of policies, Mm -hmm. because of law changes, because of how they're dealing with people with this restorative justice lens. Mm -hmm. And so I want to know from y'all perspective, because Like you said, we have to hold ourselves accountable. We have to do better so we don't end up there. Meaning that sometimes we have to create those environments for ourselves that we keep ourselves out of these environments or going and getting sent off into prison. What are the alternatives to y'all? Definitely starting at early childhood. Mm -hmm. um, When you when you when you build, we all come with some natural skills. Uh, So when you are able to build on those natural skills at a very early age, or to teach life skills and hope, instill hope at a very early age, it's they may run into some trouble, but they have a lot more self confidence. Um, they don't have as much fear of the oppressor, quote unquote. Um, 
So when you start at an early, that early childhood piece is very important. And that's why programs like Matrix that have that early childhood piece, mm-hmm. that's that's good. They're winning with that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I, I can't reiterate it enough. Starting early on, just in, trying to ingrain those life skills, those just um, kind of, how do you put it? Just building that person up, empowering them mm-hmm. to become the person that they are destined, predestined <clears throat> to be. Like, if everybody's not going to be a football player, everybody's not going to be a doctor, uh, there are going to be a, a, an influx of entrepreneurship. And we have to support that. We have a lot of uh, counselors and teachers in our schools that are kind of, they're, they're of age, they're seasoned. So they still have that when they have career days. school mentality. Yep. <laughs> when they have their career days and things like that, they invite, you know, your firefighter and the, they invite your doctor. And that's all good. But what about those um, unorthodox, mm-hmm. non-traditional mm-hmm. Uh, segments that we have? So starting at that early, early, I, I mean, preschool, head start, <laughs> uh, just, just making sure that we almost overwhelm them with things that build them up, that empower them. Mm-hmm. Mental health services is my general um, answer to that. Uh, So maybe some type of facility, um, because there's a lot of issues in the criminal justice system. Like if a person is charged, a lot of times their lawyer um, will ask for competency and criminal Mm -hmm. responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I think that that just goes to show that a lot of these crimes, there's some element of mental illness. So I think that if we had... Um, more mental health programs that would definitely lower the prison population. I got about three or four points. This is a real empowering uh, segment right here. Um, I think of number one, I think of the household on how we keep them out of, of going there to those beds is we got to have black fathers stepping up. I think that's important. Hit the bell, Ron. Because um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a father, but I do have a re- one of the re- main. I'll have a quick testimony. One of the main reasons I came a lawyer is actually I have a cousin who's like really my best friend. He's locked up for the past. He's do he's been doing since he was 18. He's been doing a bid. He'd come home next summer. So part of what I want to do was learn enough so that way I could eventually be his lawyer if I needed to be. But he got hemmed up, and and part of his big problem was he didn't have no male figure in the house. I was fortunate enough too. You know, um, have a dad, and that kind of kept me uh, kind of in the right way. I would say I don't, I don't think it's just always you gotta have have a dad, but I think right. that helps, especially just with black black kids. They have a problem with finding mentors. There's a, there's definitely that that uh, that dynamic um, in that in our diaspora that uh, there's a lack of leaders. Um, so I think black fathers that helps. I think having mentors. Um, I think point two would be education and employment, which uh, is very important. Like, if you don't know how to get money legally, then what are you going to do? You're going to gravitate towards ways to get it other ways. So uh, I think that's very important because you need dollars. Unfortunately, that's the society that we're, on, that we're in. Whoever created property was the smartest person in the world, they always say, because that, that, when you can say this is mine, mm-hmm. that changes the game. So, um, and then the other thing, the third point would be, um, I would want to have a microscope on changing laws, uh, partly because I'm biased because of my profession but and being a lawyer, but I would be wanting to change the outdated laws. I think that's what one thing that would really help, uh, like stuff like stop and frisk, stuff like uh, there's different uh, laws that they have as far as uh, what they use to target black or, or brown people. 
Um, I would look into politicians, judges, and prosecutors. I think that's very important to have people with open minds that aren't just all about throwing the book at somebody or this is your first time, so uh, we're going to make sure that you're an, you made an example of, of, of this sentence that we're about to give you. And then kind of like my bonus point, kind of what was already touched on, though, I think the rehab, rehabilitations and recovery centers are very important. A lot of time it's some type of underlying either mental health or addiction that is a big issue for a lot of people and why they, they get in that endless cycle of uh, getting in trouble or putting themselves in position to have to be remorseful remorseful before a court, which ain't fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think for me particularly, one of the biggest questions we have to ask is why is there mental health for these issues, right? And uh, for me, my father died uh, two years ago, actually, from mental health. And one of the experiences I learned from that is not necessarily knowing uh, what mental health issues there are. But one of the stigmas that black communities have is there is no such thing as mental illness. How many of y'all can attest to that? He's just Uncle Ruth acting crazy. Right. Auntie Betty just, she she don't know what she's talking about, right? right? That's what we say. It's a stigma. With these stigmas or cliches that we create for our own community, that doesn't allow us to be necessarily real about the real circumstances and situations, right? So for me, who's coming back from Alabama A&M for four years in college to Detroit, to hear my family just uh, right off what's going on with my father is, oh, let's just walk, being walk. Right. He just being crazy, right? For me, I have a different grasp. I have a different understanding. I have a different knowledge of what's going on, right? And a part of it has to do, firstly, what you said. It's the stigma. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, something might be wrong. Something might be really going on here, right? Something beyond my control, although I know it's something going on here, but something beyond I can handle or manage, right? So until we can understand and identify what are, like, some mental illness challenges or what's not really somebody being drunk on, lean, or high on this or Mm -hmm whatever it is that they indulge in on a daily basis to somebody really having some abusive issues, medical issues, mental illness issues, right? We have to learn how to differentiate between what we have been used to as a culture because part of, like I said in the first, earlier before, is being real, right? Part of being real is understanding that, hey, yo, my sister might have something going on here. And how do I deal with this without making us feel stigmatized or ostracized because of it, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, what that does is create a pathway that can ultimately lead to the results that not only I want, but that she needs. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately opens up an open, a more, not only just open, but honest discussion about what's going on in our community. Because when um, the norm is something that's, at normal based on what scientific truth is and based on our reality, we got to kind of understand what those differentiating factors are as the ones who are, quote unquote, the 1%. We can't keep having discussions about how the people who don't know aren't doing well. We know this. We know this. They're not. And, and for, so, for some, right? We can be optimistic. We can be hopeful. And we can be very supportive. That's right. But at the end of the day, there will still be a vast majority that is led off or based off of who was in control. So when we are only overly critical of our president, um, 
Some people don't like me calling him that, but I give him his respect. I don't have to like him, but I respect the office of the presidency of the United States of America. And with that comes a certain type of criticism, whether it's good or bad. And because of the, uh, the image or what he's portrayed to the American public or what he's shown to me personally, more importantly, in spite of what everyone else believes, is not one that I'm supportive of or I like. So I will be critical mm-hmm. of that, right? Mm-hmm. But that's how we, in my opinion, when you, you ask me how we should kind of like focus our energy and how we can kind of pivot the way things are going. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to deal with every five unarmed black males shooting killings in the city, right? It doesn't mean we have to always come out in a march or an outrage. It could mean that we come up with one strategic plan that deals with it all. And that's where the energy may be most purposely used, although it may not be currently used that way, right? But it's up to us, the leaders. I'm talking about you and myself, Mm -hmm. who have confidence in what we're doing and believe not only based off of experience, but off of scientific and evidence truth. Yes, evidence based. Evidence based. That's right. I'm glad you I, mentioned. I def- oh, go. Ahead. No, go ahead. I definitely think it, from what I hear um, that it is a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. You cannot just use this punitive mm-hmm. uh, system that they have. It has to. It has to address the mind, the body, the financial. It has to address all of that uh, from the beginning to, until that person yeah. grows into our age. Mm-hmm. I'm still developing and finding I'm still ways grown. Yeah, <laughs> to empower myself. <laughs> and it's holistic. Mm-hmm. I can't, without my spirituality being in place, I'm getting ready to put a, bi- a bag on the block. Because I can't <laughs> take this person saying that they're, oh, I'm a good fit for this, but because of my felony mm-hmm. background, I don't fit. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So it takes some spiritual groundedness oh, yeah. to that. Uh, but I still need to go to work as a case manager, which I am today. Thank God for that plug where I have finances or else what am I doing? I'm putting a bag on the block. Mm-hmm. So it's a holistic approach to it. And and uh, one that definitely embraces, uh, what do you call it, uh, restorative practices. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. so like a like piggybacking off of, not just um, punishing the behavior mm-hmm. because we what led to it? What what mental health issue? What trauma did they face? Mm-hmm. So, and if oh, you don't know what restorative practice is, Google it right, right now. Go. Audience, tune in. I'm glad you mentioned the Netherlands though because I was over in London. I just got back about two, three days ago. That's why I'm jet lagged out. Traveler, so I'm still, traveler. I, my bad, I got here right before the pre-show. <laughs> I'm still trying to get caught up on this time zone, five, six hours different. But I was talking to a 70-year-old white guy Actually, I was the only lawyer he had ever met in his life, which is crazy. He said it, from England or from, from America, he said he never met a lawyer in his life. It's like, I guess, like, they don't need him out there. Right. And there's no crime over in London. He was telling me, I hate to tell you this as a, as a black guy, but it, really the crime is just black-on-black knife stabbing. Like, it's, yeah. And it's like, why? what is it culturally that this way? And he did tell me he was a Trump supporter, which which was kind of <laughs> funny because I didn't think that was that was possible over there in London because they're a little bit more liberal. Yeah. But um, this dude flew his own planes and stuff, so he obviously— Capitalism, that's why he's a Trump supporter. Go ahead. Exactly. So it's something culturally, though, that's missing. Like, why is there not crime over there to the point where they they really don't need lawyers and they really don't have a a criminal justice system where people just pretty much govern themselves is what what Mm -hmm. he told me and what I experienced, that the police really don't do anything. And they get turned up. They get crazy. They get wild. So why why is that there? Mm -hmm. They don't have uh, the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. Right, Debra? Yeah, that's true. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, Mm -hmm. That's it. 
like they don't have the right to bear arms, which means that if the government deems, whether it's a white terrorist or Islamic terrorist or radical black pan-Africanist terrorist or whatever they want to deem it, is they can't restrict your rights to own a gun because you have those inalienable <laughs> birth rights in the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't have that constitutional uh, rights over there to bear arms. So that's really why that takes the violence. That, I mean, that's away. it right there. Like with yeah. knife violence, that's why you said they they just doing knife violence. Yeah, <laughs> they crazy. don't have the right to own a gun. Yeah. They don't have the right. And this is a that's a great segue into our whole know our rights because I mean <laughs> at the end of the day. A lot of us are getting caught up in these systems because we don't know our rights. And so I have an expert sitting here on the panel today (laughs) that's going to give us real quick some some about five to seven Mm -hmm. points for us to hit on before I allow the guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and plug yourselves. Everybody know that we shouldn't be out here uh, scamming and scheming. <laughs> you don't need to know your rights for that. You shouldn't be swiping out here. Everybody. So, Jazz, hit us a little bit. G- mm-hmm. Give us a little bit about what we should be knowing in these Detroit streets. Okay. So, I was going to start with expungements just because if you um, do happen to mess up, I want people to be aware of the expungement law in Michigan um, just because it is an opportunity for you to possibly expunge your criminal record. Um, so Michigan allows you to have up to one felony and up to two misdemeanor, misdemeanor convictions. And there's kind of more rules to it than that. It's, it's not just simple felony misdemeanors because, um, you know, there's, there's certain things that you can expunge and certain things you can't. So if you have been convicted of something that's like a capital offense, like for example, uh, first degree, uh, murder, that's not something you can get expunged. Um, DUIs, that may be a misdemeanor, but that's also something that you can't what get expunged. Um, that's also considered to be something you can't get expunged because mm-hmm. they consider all the operating while intoxicated as something you can't get expunged. And also other traffic offenses like driving without a license, that's also something you can't get expunged. Um, so just be aware of that law because going forward, like, you know, if you do end up in the criminal justice system, you definitely, when you're getting your defense attorney to represent you, you want to be making sure that you don't go past that one felony, two misdemeanor rule. Yes, um, so just be aware of that. And if you think you about to go past that, even if you think you're facing a third misdemeanor, you may want to contact an attorney because you don't want to go past that because you could get stuck with a felony on your record under the current Michigan law. So I just wanted to start with that. But um, generally, I know we just kind of talked a little bit about firearms. Um, one law that a lot of people should know is if you are a felon, you cannot be in possession of a firearm. Um, and then also another thing that young people, young black males, especially in the city of Detroit, get hit with is uh, CCW or carrying a concealed weapon. Mm-hmm. If you have a weapon in a vehicle and you don't have a CPL license, uh, that's carrying a concealed weapon. So um, just be careful with that. If you are a young African-American male in the city of Detroit or just anyone that is interested in owning a firearm, get licensed. Don't let it be a situation where you get a felon and then you got that on your record, you know, until you can possibly get it expunged. Um, in general, I just want to kind of speak to some of the things I've seen in my practice as an attorney. Um, first, I, I said you have the, re- the right to remain silent. Um, but I just want to say, like, if you ever do get stopped by the police and they're asking you something, let's say they ask you the question, do you have a firearm in that car? 
be careful because I am saying you have the right to remain silent. But if you don't say anything, they may take your omission. And I'm not saying this, that this is correct under the law, but they may take that your omission of not saying, no, I don't have a weapon to mean that you possibly have a weapon in a car. Mm-hmm. And depending on which judge or which jury you get, you don't know if you being silent is going to hold up. So it's best for you to invoke your right at that moment. So if a police officer asks you, like, you know, do you have a gun in this car? I would say I have a right to remain silent, okay, and cause, and make sure they catch that on the body cam because at the end of the day, they cannot hold that against you. Your silence, it should not be used against you. But if you, if the police ask you that and you like, um, uh, like that right there, they can infer that you're nervous because you actually have a gun. So be very careful about that. Um, but the, the right to remain silent also applies just because the police detain you or pull you over does not mean that you have to answer every single question that they ask. I've seen um, examples where people, where police have searched a vehicle in someone's driveway. Or, well, I I won't say they searched a person, but let's just say this person is in their driveway. They're lawfully at their home. The vehicle is stopped. Mm -hmm. And the police pulled them over for investigation or detained them to question them. And then pretty much the police don't have a right to touch that person's vehicle because it's parked in their driveway. It's not on a public street. It's parked in their driveway. But then this person will give them consent to search their vehicle. Don't ever do that. Don't ever volunteer consent to search anything if you don't have to. Like, let them go ahead and get a search warrant. Don't be that person. You can. It can be as easy as you making a statement, something like, I mean, it ain't nothing in there. Go ahead, look. Like, and you may think that they're not going to look, but that's enough to be consent for them to search your whole vehicle. Um, And you may not know that there's something in the vehicle. So I wouldn't play around with telling someone, telling a police officer that they have a right to search your vehicle. Um, If you are arrested by police, you have the right to counsel, um, even if you can't afford one. Um, When, you know, honestly, I think that you should always just talk to an attorney. If the police want to bring you in for a statement, why not talk to an attorney before you go get brought in for that statement? Um, Just definitely be careful with stuff like that because, yeah, I mean, statements can be used against you. And they tell you, they they give people people's constitutional rights before they make those statements, but people still make statements and they're incriminating against them. So if you have not talked to an attorney, don't make a statement. And take those constitutional rights that they're giving you serious. Like, like understand that they're giving you those rights. You can exercise them. Um, and it's not going to be held against you for exercising those rights. Um, and then last, I would just say, like, especially with Detroit um, being such a diverse population, um, you have a right not to answer questions about where you were born or whether you're a U.S. citizen. Um, a lot of these rights that I just spoke about, you can find on the ACLU website. That's the American Civil uh, Liberties Union. Union. Liberties. Yep. So they have more rights on there that go in some more detail as far as like what police can search and whatnot. Um, but I just kind of wanted to give y'all a basic outline of just some of the rights that you have. And just making sure that um, if you have questions, like my best advice is just to contact an attorney. Mm-hmm. Let's hit the bell for that. Uh, mm-hmm. The Know Your Rights Corner. Hello. Hello. But here is now my favorite part of the show is where I allow my guests to kind of give people a sneak peek into their lives and what they're doing. Uh, due to time, we are what the 355 mark. So we got about a minute each to kind of just go in because y'all know we on the clock. So at this point, I just want to open it up to y'all. If y'all got anything y'all want to pub, feel free to do that. But please let the audience know who y'all are, what y'all doing and how y'all rocking and rolling in these streets. 
Right. Well, Tiffany, uh, mm-hmm. native of Detroit, I love my city. Um, went to went to prison myself, served three years, came home, had support, uh, found some housing. I am right now rehabbing a home um, myself. Uh, my hope is to do some transitional homes, uh, some supportive housing, um, just just a holistic approach. That's what I'm doing, and I have a 501c3. It's called Royal Arms. Royal, we know what that means, king light, queen light, and uh, alm is a gift. Uh, so we're focusing in on that natural gift within within our community. Everyone has one. I don't care what background you're from. Even if you have mental health issues, you have a gift uh, that you can then turn Facts. into some economic, Facts. you know, empowering situations. And that's my thing, too. Uh, we're not going to stop poverty, but we want to find a way to pull some people out of Correct. that cycle mm-hmm. so that we can be empowered. All right. Not to. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, y'all. I'm Jasmine Moore. Um, I'm in uh, criminal justice, and I just want to pub a project Clean Slate and Lakeshore Legal Aid um, just because I want people to know that everyone has an attorney and they have the rights to an attorney. Um, so even if you can't afford one, Lakeshore Legal Aid is uh, pro bono um, legal aid. And then Project Clean Slate is a program sponsored by the city of Detroit that uh, they do expungement fairs, but they also give you an attorney to represent you throughout the full process. All right. I'm Ron Norwood. I'm a Detroit advocate. In other words, I help the community with a lot of different things, whether it's the adults or the, the youth in the community. I have a breakfast club that I host at the Detroit SIP. This coming Saturday, I have a breakfast coming up for youth who are 12 to 21 years of age. Obviously, that's a little bit over an adult. But if you want them to come out, please have them come out to the Detroit SIP located on West McNichols. We'll be there from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. We're trying to get people a seat at the table, right? It's called Breaking Bread with the Breakfast Club of Fitzgerald. And my goal is to make sure that the, the people of that community have a, a voice mm-hmm. and a place at the table with the new development going on within Livernois and Six Mile. In addition to that, I have a high school diploma program I run. Anybody need a high school diploma, please reach out to me. It doesn't matter if you dropped out over 18 years of age. We can help you make sure you get a high school diploma free of charge with a scholarship. In addition to that, we help people find employment. So Matrix Human Services do, does a lot of things in addition to helping parents find a daycare center for their children, okay? What's up? I'm Sean, TB underscore lawyer. Uh, make sure y'all send me that follow on the Instagram, Snapchat. I'm trying to get my followers up, get my likes up. <laughs> um, so that's TB, the best ever. Um, so underscore lawyer. Uh, Janky Podcast Season 2 is underway. I really appreciate you for having us on uh, Politicking. It's a great pleasure. Uh, make sure y'all check that link in my Instagram for the YouTube page. We got a couple episodes dropping new. We just dropped with Moolah Films uh, the p- first episode, Season 1, or Season 3, Episode 1 of Janky Podcasters. We all visual now, so we got the YouTube going. Uh, you can still find us on the platforms of SoundCloud and iTunes and all the other ones that you can find podcast on. Uh, this summer, what we got popping, I just got done with the Easter play, but we got, uh, on June 29th at Senate Theater, we got a, uh, 100 Men Mel's fashion show, Mitchell's fashion show. Uh, one of the main key sponsor, uh, vendors is Kill the Hate clothing line. Uh, so shout out to them. So that's what's going on this summer. Other than that, we're going to keep these episodes dropping. Holla.
I just want to thank y'all again for joining me on episode four of Politicking. That's law. I think we had a lot of good yes, topics law. and I things agree. that we could kind of talk about and get people at least in to know about what's going on in the city, what's going on with this new jail complex, how you can know your rights. But beyond that, just being able to hold each other accountable yeah. so that we can make sure that our brothers and sisters is not getting locked up. That's the biggest uh, hope and dream for me. Right. So continue to follow the conversation, Politicking, P-O-L-I-T-I-C-K-E-N. I'm on all of the social media um, you can also find me on Facebook Live, share, like, tell people about what's going on, and y'all can catch me back here at Detroit Podcast, Podcast Detroit, in two weeks. Thank y'all for tuning in. We out.